Well, hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, April the 28th. This is episode number 206 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description below and you will see all the topics that we're going to touch on. I believe there are 13 today, and these questions were all submitted over the past week. If you want to know how you can submit your own question, please also look in the video description. There'll be a link there taking you to my website, thewaytobe.org, and there's a form that you can fill out. That's what most of these people did. And why am I here? Why am I in the YouTube studio instead of out in my Way to Be Academy building? Well, because the weather's really bad. How bad is it, Fred? It's 51 degrees Fahrenheit right now with a constant rain and uh, supposed to get really windy, although right now it's only two mile an hour winds. And in Celsius, that's 11 degrees. So we went from bees flying, everything's great, the dandelions are blooming, so what's the key there? Dandelions blooming in numbers, it also means that uh, you better be ready. Swarm season, it's here, it's on us, it's going to happen, so have your stuff ready. If you're a brand new beekeeper and you don't have your bees yet, make friends with all of your beekeepers so that you can let them know, hey, when there's a swarm, I'd be glad to have it so I can start my own beekeeping experience and I can get my bees for free. And uh, if you're like me, you end up with too many um hives of bees, you run out of equipment, you don't have places to put your swarms. So for those of you who are loaded, doing really well, you might want to check in with some of the new people. Hopefully you belong to a beekeeper's organization. And uh, if they're people, their hive equipment, it's all set, their stands are out, they've got their tools, they've got their suit, they've got everything, and they're ready to go. They just don't have bees. Uh, you can be the hero. You can help them out. So make sure to let everybody know that you need bees if you do. What else can we talk about today? Oh, the things that uh, the bees are on are really interesting. Um, as I've shared before, I'm planting hyssop, as many hyssop plants as I possibly can. And my greatest regret about that plant is I don't have acres of it, honestly. Uh, how did I miss it all these years? I've been planting all the other stuff, and the other stuff wasn't a waste. I mean, we, you know, we grow sunflowers, we grow all the usual stuff, max a million sunflowers for the end of the year. See, here's the point. I want a nectar source for my bees, and of course pollen too, but in the case of hyssop, primarily nectar. That plant will bloom, and there's a bunch of varieties, by the way. There's Agastache, there's all kinds of hyssop varieties. And uh, not against planting all of those that are hardy where you live. They're perennial, but I understand even being called perennial, they may only be good for about three years. So they need some maintenance. You need to kind of keep them going. But uh, I wish I had planted way more of it. I'm planting lots of it. I started it inside. You can start it from cuttings, from seed. You can split them. And uh, divisions. You can do a lot with hyssop. So let me know what you're growing that works really well. That's a heavy nectar plant that really spans the months right through summer into, into you know, the first heavy frost that we get and still provide nectar. So the bees, the competition for nectar is increasing, but the good news is the sources for nectar also increasing. 
One of the plants that I was surprised to see bees on, uh, crawling around in my yard, uh, the violets. Violets are these little tiny flowers that are grown about, you know, three inches off the ground and there were honeybees on them. And this is the other part that's really interesting to me. Uh, a lot of people when they're looking at their landing boards to see, are my bees bringing in pollen? They're looking for orange and yellow pollen. Well, like the violets, the pollen from that was dark brown, almost purple. So look for the different colors of pollen on the hind legs of your bees. Don't just look for orange and count those. Count the other stuff too. Other than that, everything is doing great. A warm-up's coming, but the rain is going to be here for days. So I'm told by the weather experts, and they know what they're talking about. They're like, they're never wrong. Except that they're often wrong. So we can just hope that we get little patches of sunshine. Right now, at 51 degrees Fahrenheit with a completely overcast and the rain coming down, there are still bees coming to the syrup that I put out for them. I put out syrup just in case some of them make it through on a day like today so that they can get some provisions back. Maybe 20 bees. So, not a lot, but it's a feel-good thing to do. Let's get right into question number one, which comes from Jeff. How do you sterilize your equipment, specifically your tweezers? Not saying it is necessary, but I'm guessing you've thought about it. And the reason the tweezers come up, and by the way, if you're a beekeeper, Really fine-tipped tweezers are super handy for a lot of reasons, but uh, I mentioned them because I was using them in my hyssop video where I was showing people how I started them, how I was growing them, and I was picking up the started seeds with these little tweezers. And uh, even when you're planting, you know, so horticulturists, botanists, people that do research on plants, they're very into sanitizing their gear, as should beekeepers be. I don't think it's that critical um, to sanitize your equipment hive to hive all the time, but uh, you can get ahead of that by, for example, keeping a flat hive tool in every hive so that each hive has its own tool. Now, most of you won't do that because you want a tool on your tool belt and you want to wear it and go from hive to hive and use the same one. So that's understandable. There are different designs of hive tools. So what I've been doing is your smoker's already out there and you usually have a lighter for your smoker. So you can take your torch. It's a, you know, designed for soldering, copper tubing, stuff like that. Um, so anyway, these torches, propane or map gas in some cases, you just fire up your hive tool until it, not until it glows, but until it gets really hot. You can see the change in it. It gets iridescent and then it goes through a little change. And then you just wipe it off with uh, a cloth, a cotton cloth, by the way, which are super handy, just like the ones bar keepers have. That's 100% cotton cloth right there. They're super thin. I have them in my kits everywhere. This particular one has not been used to clean hive tools, but it's great. You just wipe it off and you have a clean tool before you go to your next hive. Tweezers, the same thing. What if you don't want to use a torch? Glad you asked. And it's the cover image for today. I thought it would be cool because it, it seems to make sense to me that you have these heat guns. And I have them because I use them for a lot of different things. And so they're handy for a lot of different stuff. Particularly when you are refurbishing your hive equipment. So you've got boxes and stuff. A lot of you are cleaning out dead outs. 
And a lot of beekeepers use the torch I just mentioned, and they, they torch all the interior surfaces of their hive. Now, I don't know to what extent that is really valuable as a sanitization practice, because that's a surface burn. And when you get the surface really hot, it starts to char a little bit, and that's when they know they need to stop. But that's an open flame. And here's why I think about that, because there's propolis and there's beeswax and everything else on the surface. So I decided I would be using a heat gun. Now this is the plug-in type. So usually here in the United States, 120 volt. But uh, they make another version of this, super expensive though, uh, that takes batteries. Now I don't know, if you've got one of the battery ones, let me know how that works out for you, because that sounds convenient. But when you have your uh, hive equipment in your bee shed, you know, you've loaded on the back of your cart, whatever you use to bring your bee equipment around, uh, and you're cleaning up those dead outs, we really want to heat up the wooden frames and everything else to the point of combustion. So you may be wondering to the point of combustion, and by that I mean when it starts to turn brown. The fire triangle, heat, oxygen, fuel. Anyway, um, you may wonder how hot do you have to get it? Over 300 degrees Fahrenheit in general to sanitize the surface. Now that's the surface. That's why I'm saying, hmm, I don't know if we're really getting very far into the wood, but when it comes to your tools, easy to do. Plus it melts the beeswax and everything, propolis, everything comes right off, easy to wipe it off. The other thing is I re recommend that you get some good heavy gloves and that you get a cotton cloth. And while you're heating the edges of the interior edges, specifically where your frames sit on that rabbit joint inside your bee boxes. There's always propolis built up there and some beeswax possibly. If you heat that up really nice until that stuff starts to bubble a little bit, then you can just take a rag or a tool and you scrape right along it. And what have you done? You've sealed up the wood with propolis. So interesting. So there's a lot of things that you can do when you heat it up. Why get rid of the beeswax? Just to me, you know, spread it around. But this will sanitize your tool, it will seal your hive box. So uh, you kind of walk in a fine line there when you get over 300 degrees uh, that you could start to, if it starts to turn color, if the wood itself starts to turn color, just back off. And this is clean, there's no open flame, and I think it's a great way to go. The battery powered ones, I'm not sure how much time you get out of it. With this particular tool, a whole bunch of attachments come with it for the ends. But as I just mentioned, we don't have to talk a lot about it, but they have all these different shapes that go on the end, scrapers that direct the heat down and you can scrape as you go. So these tools are all included. It's almost like it's made for beekeepers, but I think it's for anything that needs to be heated up. So lots of options with that. That's the one I particularly like. I think I only bought it a year or two ago. And uh, I like it for all the purposes that I just uh, described. It melts beeswax and everything else. So that's what I use. Or just your torch, as I mentioned before. Question number two comes from Carl. Here in California, we've had an unusually wet and cold winter. As a result, I was unable to open the hive for inspections or to add space as the number of bees increased. By the time I was able to get into the hive, there was already a capped queen cell, and I saw only one. A week later, they swarmed. I recovered it and started a second hive. That's always a great feeling when they swarm. There's nothing you can do about it. 
but then you catch them, so they're still your bees. Two days later, the first hive swarmed again. Two days later, they swarmed a third time. Three days later, it swarmed a fourth time. I've never heard of four swarms in the same hive. Apparently, there must have been more than one capped queen cell. Now, both hives appear to be doing fine. Any insights? Yeah, and this is, by the way, a genetic trait. Uh, some bees are swarmy. Africanized bees are swarmy. I'm not saying that's what you have. But uh, here's one of the curious things is for those of us who are really excited about swarms, I personally am. I love it. I like to see swarms. I like to influence swarms. I like to collect the influencers. Who are the influencers on that bivouac location? Those are the worker bees that have come back as scouts and they are trying to convince the other bees that are in that cluster where to go. So here's what I like to do. I like to scoop up the little waggle dancers on the surface of the swarm because they're the ones trying to tell them, hey, I found a place that's great, come check it out. I scoop those up in my hand and I put them in the box I want them to go into. They're already influencers, I already know, that they have the antennae of their fellow worker bees. And if you do that enough times, if you're consistent and patient and pretty laid back about it, you're going to find out pretty soon that they start waggle dancing, giving an indication relative to the direction of the sun that is highly similar to the location that you've just started putting them into. I did this demonstration with a bunch of people watching one day. There was a cluster of bees on a, it was a wire that supports grapevines in a vineyard area, part of the country, north of us here. And I was trying to explain to them what the waggle dance is, what's going on, and how there's these influencers, and we're trying to get them to go into this box. And I thought, I wonder if we can manipulate these bees in a swarm, because they're intermediate, they haven't made a decision as to where they're going to be, the cavity, they're not in it yet, they're out in the open. So then I scooped them up, and the one guy took his cell phone and walked with the bees, and I put them in the other hive. And then I kept doing that. And then what I did was I tried to create a consensus with the bees, so we're manipulating them right? So then I started scooping other random workers from the cluster and walking them over. And then I started putting them on the landing board. And you know, they started going in. And then here's what we were trying to get them to do, to raise their Nazanoff glands and start to fan and, and try to encourage the rest of the colony to come their way. And then when I saw waggle dancers, we watched them, they left that spot. And it's only about 60 feet away from where this cluster was. When they flew back and landed on the surface, those that started to do waggle dances were waggling and indicating a location, a very short duration waggle. Why? Because it's very close to where they are. In fact, there's another name for this very short duration dance. They call it the round dance. And it's because they just kind of do a figure eight with very little or no waggling to it. So then I was like, look at that. They're actually talking about this space right here because their waggle is directly down. What's that mean? It's 180 degrees from the direction of the sun right now. And look at the shadow on the post right there. It's aiming straight at the box, which means the sun is over there. And if we go 180 degrees from that, look where the hive is that they're going to go to. And like textbook, they all took off into the air. They seemed like they were leaving, going another direction, and the cloud did a little loop-de-loop -loop around, and then they all went to that box. So it's a lot of fun. But here's what I want you to know. That was a huge cluster of bees. So they were in their bivouac location, it's called. Now, often what you'll see hanging from a tree branch will be these little fist-sized clusters of bees. 
and uh, they're tiny swarms. And they're related to what's going on here, which is what we refer to as after swarms. So after swarms are when you do have a situation where there's a bunch of queens. And of course, when they start to emerge from their cells and uh, they're maturing, what have they not done yet? They haven't flown out and done a mating flight and come back and they're not laying workers. Therefore, they really haven't established themselves as the dominant pheromone inside the hive yet. So it's kind of up to the worker bees to turn against some of the other um, developing pupa. The queen herself, if she's really strong and dominant, will scoot around even though she's not mated and she will sting through the sidewalls of the uh, queen cells. And usually you see those when you're inspecting your colony chewed out from the side. So you see the little queen cell hanging there and they're chewed out from the side and that means you caught it pretty fresh. That means that she killed the pupa, the queen that's in her development stage there, and uh, then they just cleaned, it, cleaned the cell out and they haven't yet broken down the cell. So what you end up with is a virgin queen that flies out with a swarm, which is weird, I know, and not very productive on the part of the bees because they are in jeopardy. They flew out with an unmated virgin queen. And when they do that, her pheromone's not very strong. That's why she doesn't end up surrounded by five pounds of bees. So colonies can just do it over and over and over. And sometimes you end up with a very small contingency in the colony. So it's not actually very rare. It happens a lot. And those are the, the queens that you can collect if you want to. But your other option is because, look, it's so small. Uh, you can feel your way through it. You can blow air on it. You can spread them out. You can find the queen and then you can just restore them to the colony. So if they're swarming out and you feel like the numbers are getting too small, you can just remove one virgin queen after another until they all go back. And I've found bivouacked clusters of bees before that had two or three or even more in some cases um, queens all in the same cluster. So we also make the assumption there, because we have no way to prove it, we make the assumption that they're also virgin queens from the same hive. So remove the queen, the workers go back, and you don't lose them, assuming you still have other queens left to go. So... You wanna, I've tried it before. I haven't had a lot of luck with collecting those tiny clusters of bees, but now uh, there are things out there like the Apame Queen Builder Hive, which is a seven frame nucleus hive that can divide and become three small units. So you can get away with grabbing a frame of brood and putting that in there with that one tiny cluster just to see if she makes it. But remember, she still has to complete a mating flight. So there's a big gamble there, but on the positive side, if you put them in a small nucleus like that and create just a two-frame kind of queen finisher out of it because there aren't enough, that's why we need some capped brood in there to start to bolster them. Uh, if down the pike, that queen is not mated, so you would check them again in a couple of weeks. And if there's no queen or eggs in there, then you know that she didn't get mated, it was unsuccessful. Now what do you do? Well, they're related to the colony that you just took them out of, so you just restore them. And uh, you gave him a chance. Didn't make it. That's the end of question number two. But yeah, that can happen. The other thing you need to make sure of is that there's not some reason that they're absconding or that they're trying to get away from that hive. Make sure that all the conditions in the hive are as good as they possibly can be. So question number three comes from James in Clarksville, Tennessee. Watch with interest your pollen sub experiment. Question. 
Is there any type of hive memory that would account for your bees preferring Ultra B because they are more familiar with that product? So you know what? That's really interesting. And uh, what we were doing in this in the spring is we were trying to see what their preference was for dry pollen substitute powders. So we used Ultra B, which is something I've used for years. Um, we used Mega B, that I got that from Better B. And then we used AP23, which comes from Dayton. And there had been recent scientific studies published that showed that the bees nutritionally, um, they found AP23 to be nutritionally superior to the other two. Uh, but they also uh, hinted that the bees were more attracted to it. So I thought, easy backyard experiment. Put it out. And this is why this is interesting. And backyard experiments are never the final word, right? So you want to give them as many control parameters as you can so that you understand uh, really what your bees are doing. That's why in the time-lapsed opening of the video where I talked about that, I even changed the positions during the day of Ultra B, Mega B, and then AP23. So to see if they were going to specific positions and guess what they were following? Overwhelmingly, they followed Ultra B. So Ultra B dry pollen sub was preferred by the bees. Now that doesn't mean that's what the best nutrition was, but if your goal is to get as much of that into the hive as possible, then the one that the bees are attracted to would be significant. The other thing is, if we really wanted to carry out the experiment even farther, it would be to only provide AP23 or only provide Ultra B and see if those that would have gone for Ultra B, for example, in the absence of the Ultra B dry pollen sub, see if they would have gone for Mega B. Um, and I did not do those. So what I did was I offered all three at the same time. But if there was primacy, I highly suspect it would impact which one they go to. So, for example, uh, there are no bees left over from last fall. So if I did a previous year study, you know, their memories are as long as the bees live. So um, in the spring, they did not have a memory of just Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub. And I had never used AP23 and I had never used Mega Bee. So historically, I've only used Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub around here. And again, it was just to see if they go after it. It's not because I felt like they really needed it. It's just fun stuff to do, experiments to do. And if you're teaching kids how to conduct an experiment, great way to do it. Sit down and talk about it and challenge each other. Well, why would this work? Why would that work? What are some of the parameters that might be variable? Um, so we did know a few things about that. Dry pollen sub in the sun, preferred by bees, over dry pollen sub in the shade, no matter what kind it was. So as the sun passed over these three types, uh, the bees avoided whatever was in the shade and went to whichever one, it didn't matter, whichever one was still in the sun, that's where they went and got their dry pollen sub. So all conditions equal, they went for Ultra B. Number two, they went for AP23 and a distant third, they went for Mega B. So it was interesting. So actually based on the studies that I read though, the Ultra B should have been the third choice and should have been the least used or preferred by the foragers. So repeatability is part of science. So once we define those parameters, 
And uh, once we know what we're testing, we also want to make sure it's all fresh every day, that we're not using stuff that's been damp or out overnight, for example. And in the exact same carton, so there's no visual difference in how it's being offered. Uh, so there are a lot of things we try to make it as constant as possible. But if, let's say, you know, for argument's sake, for James here, let's say I only put out Ultra B, and then I let the bees go to that for three or four days. That means that that's the scent uh, that is being carried by the bees when they're going back and they're bringing the dry pollen sub. They're doing the waggle dance inside the hive. Now inside the hive, it's completely dark. So what are they doing? They're smelling what this forager is bringing in. It's not bringing in nectar because there's no nectar associated with dry pollen sub. So it is only pollen that's coming in. It's only the protein. So um, those that approve of that and that wanted more of it or the storekeeper bees or whatever decide that they want more of that and they're encouraging these bees to go back out, uh, then they would be following that specific scent. And when they fly into the scent trail of the Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub, they would come to that. So this would be an easy experiment to conduct in an area where you're in a pollen dearth. And then later you could add one of the other two. So you would add Mega B or AB23 um, and then see if they demonstrate a preference for the Ultra Bee because that's what they found out in the hive that they were headed out for and that's what they were scenting for. See, So it would make sense that then if you had one that was out ahead of the others that they would then show a preference for that. And then of course whichever one you added last would be uh, the one that they had the least demonstrated preference for. So again, good experiments to do, lots of fun. But uh, yeah, they have memories and uh, they know what they like and they know what they go after. So next year, because we're done this year, they won't pay any attention to it anymore. Too much pollen coming in, plenty of pollen in the hives, um, whole frames full of pollen. And here's the best part. The pollen is a variety of colors from olive green to tan to almost white to bright orange, Cheeto orange, all right next to each other because uh, storekeeper bees inside the hive aren't the ones arranging the pollen. We're going to talk a little bit more about pollen today, but it's the foragers after they've done their waggle dancing, if they do, uh, they're the ones that are just finding an opening somewhere and they're scratching the pollen off of their hind legs right into the cell themselves and then the nurse bees come along and they finish it. So question number four comes from Brenda in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Says I baited one of my top bar hives to catch a swarm. If I catch a swarm, I want to requeen with a Saskatraz queen. How long do I wait to requeen? And the best way to do it. Okay, I have questions for Brenda on this. So if you've got a swarm and you put the swarm in, this is a question I always have when somebody goes, Yeah, I got a swarm. Now I can get rid of the queen, and now I can get a queen that I know the genetics of, like a bee weaver or you know, a carniolan or whatever it is that somebody wants to keep. And in this case, it's Saskatras. So then I just kill off the queen and install a new one. So my question is always, why not wait to see what they perform like? Why not wait to see how good they are? You're gonna be waiting, you know, you have a swarm in there, so you know, you're a good period of time out before you're gonna know 30 days out before you really know the temperament of the hive, the traits of the hive, and all these foragers and how they're doing. 
And then you could decide, yeah, that queen is garbage. Now I'm going to replace her. There's nothing wrong with letting the swarm uh, set up shop for you. And uh, why fly in a replacement queen right away? Let them all build up because you know what you might discover is that that queen that you have, that hybrid, the, the unknown queen, she may actually be a top performer, especially this time of year when she's come through winter and uh, she's in a prime swarm, like one of the first swarms that come out in this time of year. Uh, those are generally very healthy, very competent queens. And look at the number of bees that are with her. If that's several pounds of bees, she's a good queen already performing well in your zone. So I always wonder why do we want to get rid of that queen and bring in a new one just so we get that new genetic line because if they swarm later, you're going to lose that queen too. But I always say wait and see. You might have a top performer on your hands and she's free. There's always the option down the road to bring in that uh, known genetic queen like a Saskatras. Um, and uh, so then let's say you don't want anything to do with that. You absolutely want to know what kind of uh, queen you have and you want to get her from Olivares County, from the Olivares Bee Breeders. And uh, you should know too that those Saskatchewan queens there are open mated. So you might get some genetic differences there. They're not straight Saskatchewan mated with Saskatchewan drones. So just food for thought there too. But uh, so let's say, how long should you wait? Well, wait until this brood. Wait until there are eggs and then there's open larva. And so the bees are committed to that spot. And then, you know, 24 hours into that, uh, before 24 hours before you install your queen, just to make it a little better, go ahead and get rid of the existing queen. But here's the risk. If you kill your current queen before the new queen comes in the mail, I'm assuming it's coming in the mail. So if you're going to get them, but you're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so I'm just going to guess they're mailing it to you. You don't know what the queen went through in the mail. So if you're getting rid of your queen and installing a known queen that you're buying, uh, you're kind of at risk because if something happens to the queen, if she gets cooked in transit or something, she might not be dead. She just might be impacted in her fertility. So a lot of things can happen that you don't know about in transit. So I recommend at that point that you create a small queen nucleus and you take the queen that made it, that was part of the swarm, and you put her in, your, in her own hive with some of the larvae that she started on her own. Just a frame or two. It doesn't have to be a lot. You got your new queen coming in, and then you can install her in the new colony. Again, play the wait and see game to see how well she performs. And once she has a nice clean laying pattern, they should have comb built and everything else. This new uh, install of your swarm should have a constant supply available of sugar syrup. So just to keep them going, like right now it's raining everywhere. So if we had a brand new colony that was just hived, I would have sugar syrup on them just to make sure that they have the carbohydrates to keep going. Um, so there are a lot of variables here, but my personal approach to that would be and is wait and see what they perform like and see if you even need a replacement queen. I only replace the queens with a buy, with a, with a, with a purchase queen, with a buy-in, um, 
if for some reason it's a big colony and I realize that they're queenless at an inconvenient time, that they don't have the resources to make a new queen, and that what'll happen in that case is they'll just start to dwindle through attrition. And we know that three weeks or more without a queen, they can start with the laying workers and we have new challenges on our hands right there. So keep them and see would be my advice, but if you want to swap them out, that would be my preferred method. Question number five comes from Thomas Ballou from Germany. Munster, oh, it's a umlauted U, so Munster, Germany. I hope I said that right. Someone on the Flow High forum suggested to add food coloring to sugar water you feed to the bees so you can tell it from nectar. Is that something beekeepers do? What are your thoughts on that or did you ever try it? Okay, that's a tool. If you're feeding sugar syrup and you want to know where it's going to put food coloring in it to see it stored in the cells, it's very distinctive. It's very easy to spot. Um, do I do it? No. One of the reasons that people do it, well, you know, researchers do it because they want to see, uh, for example, another backyard study if you wanted to do it, uh, would be to color the different uh, consistencies of sugar syrup, two to one, one to one, and everything in between, and give them distinctive different colors, so yellow, green, red, and so on. And then when you look at uh, the nectar stored in your super, you would be able to see distinctly what was being brought in from the environment and what was being delivered uh, and put in the cells that uh, the bees are bringing in from your sugar syrup feeders. And the reason that I don't do it is because when my supers are on, I don't feed sugar syrup to any of those colonies that have feeders on. That's why open feeding, all stop. So the couple of feeders that I have out right now, when we start supering hives uh, ahead of uh, their expansion so that they don't have their propensity to swarm, as soon as we start any of that and we're supering colonies, uh, any open feeding stops. The only exception is for the bees that are as described before, if it's uh, some kind of split that we made, uh, if it's a small colony, if it's a queen builder, something like that, in hive feeding. And uh, that way we control, you know, what's going there because that colony is never going to get supered. So the ones that are having supers put on, that's where it stops and there would be no point in this experiment. So it's also another way to find out when you have different mixes and things that you're trying to test, uh, see which colonies are collecting it and see which colonies are storing it. You can satisfy this question that uh, a lot of people you will hear say, that uh, when there's a good nectar flow on, it doesn't matter if you open feed or if you put sugar syrup in the hives anyway, because uh, they will stop drinking that in favor of flower nectar. And to that I say, no way. And that's because bees are opportunistic feeders. And if there's a high sugar content syrup out there somewhere, they're going for that, even though there are flowers with plenty of nectar on them you would see a reduction in demand inside the hive for a colony that's bringing in a lot of resources, but they still are going to be mixing that sugar water with the nectar from the plants. And there's absolutely no way for people to know whether that honey was made from uh, sugar syrup combined with plants or sugar syrup by itself or plants by themselves. Uh, unless there are these people that can taste and smell the honey and know right away what the resource was, and they call those people a honey sommelier. 
So uh, whenever there's going to be honey anywhere in the apiary that is going to be harvested for people or for yourself and jarred as honey, you should not have sugar syrup available to them. But yeah, that's what that is about. I don't do it because I just have no cause, no reason to find out where that stuff is going. Question number six comes from Jim, Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania. I drive truck at night and listen to the show almost every Friday. I followed your advice on only having one entrance and no upper venting with great results. However, the girl that has two hives in my bee yard leaves her bottom entrance wide open and has a screen top board with an elevated lid to allow airflow. My question is, when putting formic acid pads on, do I need to open my hive up a little to allow more airflow or keep it as it would normally be? Because last year I did close it up like normal and I thought I burned up my queen because after two weeks when I opened it up, there was no brood or larvae anywhere. Thankfully, they survived and I fed them all winter with Hive Alive and now they're bustling, busting loose. Okay, as with any miticide, Formic Pro, for example, is my reserve treatment. Guess how many times I've actually used it on a hive? I had two cases of that stuff, had it on the shelf for two years, never used it. And the reason is because um, I got the Varroa mites under control with other methods. But here's the thing, and this is what I'm going to tell you about uh, Formic Pro, which has a two-year shelf life. And uh, if you need it, you're going to use it. Always follow the instructions that are with it. And uh, actually, the website that provides the most detailed, comprehensive descriptions of what your practices and limitations are, which they get from the companies that make these products, is Better Bee. Uh, they have extensive resources education-wise uh, regarding what you should do and should not do when applying miticides. But the thing I do know about those who have used uh, Formic Pro, for example, uh, that you do have to open your entrance all the way, that they have to ventilate the hive. I don't know about screen bottom board or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around this. We're going to talk a little bit about that more because I have a guest coming up that I'm going to talk to from Penn State. Uh, and we're going to discuss that and other things, as well as practical uh, control measures for varroa mites. But uh, it's very common that you see a lot of dead bees after a Formic Pro treatment. It's also very common that queens are impacted by Formic Pro treatments. Uh, and yours in the, in the long run actually worked out, was alive, it just, the brood was removed. So there's some evidence there, in my opinion, uh, that with the absence of eggs and open brood immediately following the treatment, that uh, somehow those were affected and the bees cleaned out those cells. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the queen, so she started laying again and you recovered over time. But that is a treatment. It is considered an organic treatment, by the way. So those who want to be organic that uh, want to avoid synthetics and things like that, which I highly endorse, avoiding synthetic treatments, um, you still end up, you can have organic, uh, you know, you can claim that you have nothing but organic treatments in your hive and things like that. But uh, Formic Pro definitely requires venting. There's going to be some bees dying. 
It's not something you can do on a small struggling colony either. It could be the nail in the coffin uh, because formic is uh, a powerful treatment. It's all by smell and those odors. Uh, once you do it, you're never going to forget it. So I'm told, keep in mind, I haven't done it yet. And this year I didn't even buy a box of it because I figure if I get a high mite count after I've done oxalic acid vaporization, after I've done all my integrated pest management practices and I still have a big mite load, would I use Formic Pro? Yes. And I would use the dose that requires two pads at once, not the one after the other. And that's because, and you have both options, that's because I want it to treat the mites that are under the pupa. So the capped pupa are not, uh, you know, exposed to a treatment with oxalic acid vaporization. That capping shields those rotten little varroa destructor mites that are hiding and reproducing in there from the treatment. However, when you use the double pack of Formic Pro, that's one of the biggest advantages is that it knocks out the varroa destructor mites underneath the cappings in all of your pupa. So it is. So if I were going to use a treatment like that beyond oxalic acid vaporization, Formic Pro is my choice. And uh, beyond that, uh, someone that I really respect that does a lot of research at Cornell recommends Midaway Quick Strips. And I thought that so then if you had Formic didn't work or you had a small colony, for example, then the Midaway Quick Strips would be another choice. But my first line of assault is going to come from oxalic acid vaporization delivered with my instant vape. So, but yeah, in fact, uh, some keepers uh, expect queen loss when they do that. And uh, to go back to the person that was asking before about replacing the queen, if you're going to do Formic Pro, for example, you would do that before you get in your brand new queens and then uh, you just replace the queens. So you can do a heavy dose you lose brood, you lose workers, and then you replace the queen afterwards. Or maybe take your queen out and isolate her during that treatment period, but you risk, of course, taking uh, varroa destructor mites with you. Question number seven, moving on. This comes from Vince from Illinois. Is that Metamora, Illinois? I don't even know how to say that. Anyway, it says, two weeks ago, I found two super seizure cells. This past Saturday, I did not see any eggs yet, so I waited until today and checked again. So for those of you who don't know, supersedure is very different from a swarm cell. Swarm cells are, they're building queens, but it's usually around the edges, outside edges of brood frames. Supersedure means uh, the queen died, something happened to her, um, she just wasn't performing well, they might have even killed her. I've had my bees turn on their own queen and chew her wings off. That's how much they hated her until she could only walk out and fall on the grass in front of the hive. So um, then they needed to do a super seizure, which means they didn't have time to build up and plan ahead and, you know, exercise the queen and get her ready. So none of the bees left with the queen. They stay there. They have a super seizure cell. So they have a, a queen that's going to replace the one that they had before. And we don't necessarily know what happened to the other queen. And those come out of the middle of the field somewhere. So it's like they had an emergency, they chose a worker cell, they build out the worker cell, and they just develop a queen from that uh, because they're 
they're in a hurry. So anyway, it goes on to say that today I found eggs, but again, I found two superseder cells with royal jelly in them. Are they planning on superseding or swarming? So again, superseding, swarming, it depends on where they are, but any new queen could cause a swarm where the existing queen departs the hive. So if you know that you have eggs and that they're laying and uh, that these are not drones, so if you know for sure that you don't have a laying worker, for example, which you probably wouldn't, but uh, you make sure that those are real workers coming through, um, you could risk it and smash those cells. Or you can pull the current queen and again, nucleus hive insurance policy. Uh, so there are a few cells with two eggs, but that could be the new queen, true. New queens, when they start laying, often produce multiple eggs in a single cell. And what do you think is happening? Well, that's my guess. I mean, it's not so much what I think is happening, but uh, just to keep an eye on them to see what they do. And if you do find the queen, and they, I've also seen this, and here's why sometimes taking action and removing the queen, for example, because there are new queen cells coming up, uh, is a risky venture and that's because sometimes i've had it where they're building queen cells and the queen's there and then i check less than a week later and all the queen cells are gone they just dismantled everything so we don't always know what's going on that's why i'm always hesitant to kill a queen take her away and store her somewhere and then kind of see what pans out there and if they don't successfully replace that queen then we have her, we can bring her back. I'm going to say the same things over and over again. If you have a healthy queen that's developing brood and stuff like that, but they're making queen cells, this is a great way to make a split. Hive her in a tiny uh, box, unless you want another colony and they're really big enough to take multiple brood frames with you. But I'm this year, I'm leaning more towards just these two frame kind of queen housing situations. And that's because I'm going to be evaluating that uh, Apa May Queen Finisher, Queen Builder, um, seven frame nucleus hive. I have a double decker. So we're going to be working on that this year. And that's where I'm going to keep my insurance policy queens with their brood. And if they build up and they get bigger in that and uh, the other colony that we took her from does fine and they replace their queens fine and they start laying and they're building up. Well, now we just have another colony. So uh, that then will have to be migrated out of the two frame situation. And you can just pull the divider, add frames up to seven in that hive. So very interesting, lots of fun ahead. So one of the cool things about beekeeping is there's new stuff coming out all the time. It doesn't mean you always have to get the newest thing, but uh, it expands our options when it comes to creating resource hives, banking queens, saving a queen from a colony when we don't know for sure what the future of that colony might be. And uh, so these tiny hives, I like nucleus beehives. I really do. Question number eight comes from Peter uh, Mundaring, Western Australia. Okay, so I intend to build a long lang to your design over our winter. And I'm going to pause right there. For those of you who are wondering, the long Langstroth hive, if you want to see what the design is, you go to the website, thewaytobe.org, and uh, there's a page that's labeled prints for you. And these prints are absolutely free. It shows the bottom boards, they're PDFs. You can download them, print them, 
and you can copy the design and, and make your own modifications if you don't like the way it looks. But these are designs that I've arrived at that work really well here in the Northeastern United States. So anyway, continuing on, when it comes time to populate it, would you start with a nuke or take frames from an established hive with the queen and put them in using the follower board to keep them tight until they start to expand? Okay, so a nuke, for those of you who don't know, nucleus colony, it's a colony of bees and people sell them. I highly recommend you get the deep frame nukes because this is going into a deep uh, long Langstroth hive that uses all deeps if it's following my design. Um, and you could very easily do that. Just even the thing that I just described. Now, my long Langstroth hive is big. It's long. It looks like a coffin. It's very effective. I like it. It's the easiest hive design to tend to. You don't stack any boxes. You don't lift any boxes. And here's the thing. The hive might be 50 inches long. But uh, where the entrance is, you could set up so it just has two or three deep frames and this follower board comes in and closes it up. So to the bees, as far as they know, the entire hive is four frames. So it is very easy to make a split from another colony and we're coming up on split season here because we do it when we see the drones. And we know that we have frames full of drones right now that are capped, that they're going to probably emerge this coming week near the end of the week. Uh, when all these drones start getting out, it's a great time to start your splits because at the same time that they're developing their queens and replacements and things like that, the drones are maturing and all over the environment will get great competition, which is what we want in the drone congregation areas. We want maximum competition. So, you know, it's all a matter of these nucleus hives. Who are they coming from? How good are they? How much do you trust the person that's selling them? And of course, it's the fastest buildup. You can actually, from a nucleus colony, even get surplus honey your first year. Uh, I've had surplus honey come from swarms the first year because they build up incredibly fast sometimes. But uh, if you've got a really strong colony, you want to make a split, then there's nothing wrong with that either. Because I'm a backyard beekeeper, I, you know, I don't have a bottom line to meet. I'm not trying to produce a bunch of honey by the end of the year. So for me, waiting it out, being patient, and I like to watch these little colonies become big colonies. It's, uh, it's very satisfying for me to see them make it. And uh, again, when you put them in that small um, long lang, you put them in the small section of that, uh, I would provide them with uh, a rapid round feeder on top of that. So keep them going and let us know what you decide and uh, how it works out. Follow-ups are fun. So question number nine comes from Vicki from Maysville, North Carolina. Several weeks ago, you suggested that we compare the use of one-to-one -one syrup with Hive Alive fondant in our two March packages of bees. Thank you for that. We wound up offering both to each new colony and both were enthusiastically consumed by the bees. We're really glad we did this since the presence of the fondant helped on the rare occasion that we didn't add additional syrup to our rapid rounds in time. And it was easier for the bees to access some extra carbs. On a side note, we added sock tops to both rapid rounds and it really helps. So putting the, the toddler socks on the center of your rapid rounds, uh, for those of you who are wondering, that uh, keeps your bees from falling in and drowning when they get pushed in by other bees. 
So now for another question. We were blessed with two swarms of bees adopting two of our five frame two-story nukes. Yay. And that's a great, uh, you know, swarm capture size, five over five. But uh, the only thing is they are shedding a huge number of mites into their oil trays. The smallest of the two swarms shed 250 mites in just five days. That's an infestation, you guys. Is there something about the act of swarming that helps swarming bees shed their mites? We'll be treating with Apolifar thymol since the instant vap that we hope to get from Laura Bees has yet to arrive. What? Rob has not shipped out your replacement? Anyway, um, I would check in with Rob to find out how long that's going to be because uh, being that these are swarms that you've collected, you have time. Um, you've got nine days, I understand. But uh, you want to get a hold of him and see if he's shipping one out and uh, let us know what happens there. But uh, see, because a swarm, if you put in Apolifar and um, these other treatments, a swarm is in a delicate situation. And one of the problems, they are mite infested, by the way. That's a huge number of mites. I wouldn't play games with them at all. Um, you have to treat for those mites. So, yeah. How annoying is that? But anyway, uh, since the ends of that, we hope we'll get larvae. Yeah, to right. So you're going to have to do the treatment. And then uh, monitor those mites on those because that is a heavy load. I've never had the highest mite count I've ever had was with uh, my Saskatrass bees, which is really weird. But uh, when you get high mites like that, you're going to have to track them and stay on top of it. And I hope uh, as they build up that you may be trying out that uh, drone comb system for collecting mites, trapping them and getting rid of them. But uh, please keep us posted on that. It's very interesting. I'm surprised that Rob is, does not have those. Let us know what happens there too. Uh, because that would be your best treatment. The oxalic has a vaporization. The mites are exposed. They're phoretic. It's a soft treatment. And you won't be driving your bees crazy with it. So question number 10 comes from Anne. And it says, what do you do with deep frames that are loaded with pollen from last year? I seem to have quite a few and it takes up a lot of the queen's laying space. I'm adding foundations periodically to build new wax, but wonder what to do with all the extra. Okay, this can happen sometimes because bees are going to winter time with a lot of pollen. Uh, and you see these frames that are three quarters or even a full face frame of pollen, all these different colors. It seems like a great resource. And you wonder why they didn't use it during winter, but that's beside the point because here we are in spring. This is something that a lot of you will be coming across because you may be cleaning up dead outs as well. And you might find frames of pollen in your dead outs. Sometimes the pollen uh, is even entombed. Sometimes it's capped and covered over and uh, is really dense in the cells. So it's not always easy to clean it out. But what I want to talk about a little bit is why they're not using the pollen. First of all, we know that the bees, and I learned this years ago when I started doing observation hives, and I would use grease pencils and I would mark the glass uh, when they stored a bunch of pollen. 
to see when they were using it. And you could smell the fermentation of the pollen inside the building. Really interesting. And we have that situation right now in the Way to Be Academy building. And that's because we have multiple observation hives in there. They're all bringing in heavy pollen. The pollen is being fermented. And what are they doing? <clears throat> what are they doing with it is um, right about the 48 hour mark is when it's the most consumed. So the thing we can spread that out. So from two days up to five days, pollen is really popular with your bees. And there have actually been studies done on that, the nutritional value of the pollen as it gets even older, out to 10 days after it's been put in the cells. So probably uh, explain a little bit of the process of that. Bees start processing pollen even while they're out foraging. That's how they get the pollen to stick to their hind legs. You'll see them run their forelimbs down their tongue. You'll see a little bubble of uh, honey or nectar come out of the bee. And they use that to stick the pollen together and they groom it back and they groom it onto their hind legs and then it all sticks together. And that's why sometimes the pollen that's on their legs is much darker than the pollen that's on the plant that they're visiting. And that's because they're amending it already. So this process has begun. And when the bees are flying uh, into the hive, it was one of the reasons early on that I wanted them to have solid bottom boards and not screen bottom boards years ago. And that's because I was observing the bees and I thought, wow, you know, some of them are just dropping the pollen off of their legs. They're not even getting it all the way in and putting it in the cells. And then you see these little balls of pollen laying on the bottom board or even on the entrance in some cases on the landing board. And you see other workers licking it and they look like they're about to work it. Like they might collect that pollen. It seems to make sense. They would collect the pollen and they'll take it in for the bee that was in the field foraging that dropped their pollen and then they'll make sure that it gets into a cell, but that's not what they were doing. They're licking it because it has that sweet, amended nectar or honey in the pollen. So they're trying to lick it. They're not going to collect the pollen and then somehow carry it in their mandibles and bring it up in the hive and store it. So pollen that falls on the landing board is lost anyway. So for those of you who are wondering if a screen bottom board causes them to lose pollen that they otherwise would get, because now we find it in trays. You find it in the trays of the, uh, you know, the flow hives. I have pullouts on all of my observation hives and you see pollen in there. Uh, they wouldn't use it anyway. So they don't pick it up and reconstitute it and put it up in there. So the other part of that is um, when, they're, when they're in a pickle, like when the weather turns bad, like right now, and they can't collect new pollen, but they're brooding up, they start using up the pollen that's there. But when they don't need it, see, they get into wintertime and uh, the brood gets smaller. And then by the time spring comes around, when they start building up their brood again, what are they doing? They're bringing in new pollen. So they don't touch the old stuff. This is why you end up with frames of old pollen. There's a second layer to that. Why does some pollen get ignored by the bees? And some of the pollen, depending on the time of year and the source of the pollen, can be loaded with pesticides. And for some reason, the bees figure out, these are the nurse bees, because they're the ones that are consuming the pollen and using it uh, to feed developing larvae, right? So uh, they start to avoid it for some reason, and then they'll even entomb it. And that's where we get this long-term stored pollen that none of the bees want to use. And guess what? It's not going to be used because what's happening right now, they're bringing in fresh pollen. What do they prefer? Fresh pollen. Pollen over 10 days old, most of the bees don't even touch it. So that's pretty young when we think about the pollen. And the other interesting thing was they did evaluations by they, I mean, scientists that did the research, uh, one day old pollen to 10 day old pollen. And then they realized two day old pollen because it's been through fermentation. 
was nutritionally superior for developing brood. Now, was three to five day old pollen more nutritious? In other words, if they develop brood from two to five day old pollen, was that brood healthier, bigger, stronger, more productive than the brood that was reared from six to 10 day old pollen? What do you think? No, no nutritional difference. So, but those are lab studies. And uh, so they find that, well, they're just as good. So it's a matter of personal preference on the part of the bees. And they did not do this study on 20 day old or two month old pollen, for example, to see how viable that was for your bees. So this is something too, that when people say, should I save those frames and put them in the freezer? And then when spring comes around, should I put those frames in colonies that need pollen that don't have it? So you could, but if there's pollen in the environment, the chances of them using the old pollen that you're providing are very slim. But that is one of the options that I'm going to recommend here. If you've got frames of, that are loaded with pollen from last year, uh, these are in colonies that you know the history of, you know their health. If you've got new colonies starting out, you could pull those frames and swap them out for drawn comb and put them in their place. And the frames that have pollen on them keep them adjacent to your brood production. So um, pulling them and giving them to colonies that are struggling, that are new, that are just starting out and things like that could benefit them and they might clean it up. Now let's say they didn't do that. I'm going to go down my list of options for you. Uh, the pollen is in the brood comb. Brood combs are tough, so the idea of scraping it off and rendering the wax sometimes isn't very appealing either because, for example, my brood boxes get used for brood and nothing else, and it's very fibrous and no fun to try to scrape and harvest honey from. So um, cleaning them up, you could swap out the frames with new if you wanted to. The second step I do is I like to use power washers uh, and I can wash away, depending on how high I power up the power washer, I can uh, wash off the comb and everything, or I can just wash out the cells. So the other thing I do is um, I lay out all of my garden hose. So I have 200 feet, I have four 50 foot segments on my garden hose. That's because it has to reach everywhere. And it's good exercise to drag around 200 foot garden hose. Um, so what I do is I lay that out, nice sunny day, it gets all nice and hot. And then uh, you can spray or dip, by the way. The ones that have the pollen in them, there's beeswax and everything in it. Uh, you can dip the whole thing in warm water or cold water. It probably doesn't make much of a difference, but it starts to soak it and soften up the pollen that's in the cells. Then what you've done by laying out your hose in the sunshine, two or three o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny day, it's like having a hot water spigot. So you just turn on the water just enough to start to flush these out and you have a hot shower for it. So you can hose the stuff right out of all the cells, clean it up, and then uh, turn them upside down, shake them because remember your cells are angled up. So you turn it upside down, shake all the water out of it. And then one of the things that I highly recommend you do after it dries out is you can spray that whole thing with 10% bleach and water solution just to make sure it's clean of any bacteria and stuff on the surface, let it air dry, and it can still smell like a swimming pool to you and the bees don't care. And then you're good to go to put it right back in service. Uh, another thing that you can try to do if you want to, uh, if you have a feeding station, like if this happens at the end of the year, uh, at the beginning of the year, they're not so hungry because they have so many resources already out there. 
Uh, you can put them on a feeding station and you can get the bees to chew out the pollen for you. Bees and wasps, by the way. And you can do that by spraying the surface of it with sugar syrup. So one-to-one -one sugar syrup, just spray the whole thing, you know, and it soaks the, the pollen that's in the cells and all of that. And the, the bees and other insects, so it's not just bees. Other insects will go and they'll pull out the pollen that's stored in there. Let's see. Yeah, don't try to save old pollen. It's not really good for that much. Anyway, put the frames... Oh, here's the other part. If you have have a heart, live catch traps. I do. And uh, the big ones are big enough to house your frames. Why would I do that? I put the frames of pollen and anything else I want cleaned up in these have a heart traps. And then I just set the trap right on the ground. Now, because it's in the trap, raccoons can't get to the frames. My dog can't eat the frames. Um, other animals that like to chew beeswax frames if they were left out in the open can't get into them. What can get into them? Ants and other insects. So those will also clean out the cells for you and then the same procedure after you've had it in your have a heart cage. If you don't have one of those, there's something called cage wire that you can buy and it comes in different opening sizes. So you get the half inch squares on your cage wire, heavy gauge galvanized, and you can make your own kind of container for your frames. But a have a heart cage is convenient because you close them up just like the cage sprung and they're closed and they're tough. Nothing's getting in there, even your persistent, Boston Terrier can't get in there to eat that honey. Raccoons can't get in or anything. Uh, so it's a great way to just leave it, um, to let the bugs clean it out, and then do the 10% bleach solution wash down at the end of it again, and you're back in service with those frames and storage. So you're going to need replacement frames in the meantime, and if you want to save time, I recommend if it's in your brood frames that you use better comb pre-drawn ready to go if you're in a hurry. If you're not in a hurry, just put regular heavily waxed foundation in there and you're good to go for that. So what else did I put down? Set on the ground, let clean it up, 10% bleach, this cage, preferred, seven days. Not... Okay, that's it. That's my solution. If you have another solution for getting uh, pollen, you can also just use, if there's just a few cells that they're ignoring that are old that you know they're not going to use it, get one of these. Um, this is a queen grafting tool, by the way that uh, because it's designed for grafting, it's designed to get into the cells, and you can get in there if you have a lot of patients and you don't have a lot of pollen, you just have some pollen that the bees are ignoring, you can actually get in there and scrape it right out. And once you disrupt it and get it started scraping out, go cell by cell, and scrape it out, then uh, your bees will clean it up and they'll reconstitute the cells. But unless that pollen is disturbed for some reason, they don't have the energy, they don't care. So let us know what you decide and how it worked for you. Question number 12. This comes from Emil or Emil? Emil or Emil? Okay. Uh, I believe you had said in a previous Q&A that you had converted all of your Langstroth hives to single deeps. I'm contemplating this as well and was wondering what a potential downside would be. I imagine that one potential downside would be that single deep hives they have a higher tendency to swarm since they can run out of room quickly. Is this true? And are there other downsides? Okay, so this is my configuration. Bottom board, slatted rack, single deep brood box. Once that single deep brood box is in full production, 
That means six out of eight frames or eight out of 10 frames, depending on the size and height that you're using. Then I put on a medium super. That is my entire standard box configuration. Deep brood box, medium super. But, and this follows uh, Dr. Thomas Seeley's Darwinian beekeeping practices, and he stops there, okay? And the reason he does that is because he wants the bees to swarm, swarm frequently. The more frequently they swarm, the quicker they adapt. The more generations there are, the more um, localized stock you're developing. That's the premise. That's what the thought line is. The other thing is the colonies don't get so big. Therefore, the varroa mite production is not so big. And honey yields are at an all-time low. So the honey that you get off of hives like that, you might get a quart or a gallon a year surplus honey from a hive that's configured that way. So I hybridized what Dr. Seeley recommended and I maintain that deep brood box and the medium super, which gets filled with honey and partial brood in some cases. Then above that, those are honey supers and I do super beyond that. So you'll see three and four boxes. I don't go higher than that though. Once they fill the third medium super above that brood box, that's kind of where I stop. And if they build their numbers up at that point and uh, they want to swarm out, then uh, I let them do it. And I collect the swarm and I rehive those. That's why I went from 10 colonies of bees to 22 colonies of bees. So I was just talking with uh, my son this week that I want to draw down on that. So I want to start giving away, I'm going to start loading up his yard with some of my beehives and his neighbor, his neighbor Dave. It's going to get some of those bees. So, um, and that's what happens. So they'll, they'll swarm out. This results in brood breaks. This results in kind of a natural varroa mite control. If you want to know, um, look at just Google Dr. Thomas Seeley or YouTube search it and look for Darwinian beekeeping. He's given the same presentation to many bee clubs and conventions and so you can watch it, listen to it, see what you think of that philosophy. And just like anything else, with all the beekeepers sharing their information and practices on YouTube, you can piecemeal it. You know, you, you nitpick at the little bits and pieces that you think will work well for you. And then you put those into practice until they succeed or fail. And if they succeed, you start to piece together every little tidbit that helps you be a better beekeeper and your successes start mounting up. And before you know it, you're not worried about whether or not your bees are going to make it through winter. It's just a matter of how strong they're going to be in spring or what, uh, what way that you're going to manage your bees, maybe a little differently each year. So I'm a big fan of incremental changes. And that's why uh, I like the three stacks of nucleus hives, for example. I like the uh, single deep with a medium super on it. In some cases, just a single deep. If it's a late season colony that's still building up, there's no reason to put a super on it. They wouldn't fill it. And one of the worst things you can go into winter with is uh, there's two things that are bad. One is a whole bunch of honey stacked above your bees going into winter. Um, that's gonna provide a lot of condensation in the hive and it's gonna be very difficult and the bees won't consume all of that. Therefore, they can't use it. And now they have an environment inside the hive that makes it very challenging for them. 
So we're sizing our boxes, we're sizing our hives for the cluster of bees, the number of bees in the population that are going to go, in, go into winter, and then we provide them with enough resources to get through. And somebody else referenced the, the fondant that you put on as an emergency resource. Um, so you have their honey surplus that's on, and then you have the fondant. So you'll never see in my bee yard these giant stacks um, with multiple deep boxes and then five, six, seven medium supers stacked on top of it. Uh, it's not what I want to do at all. I'm not after the honey, so I don't need that production. And the colonies that are kept smaller tend to do better health-wise if we're trying to reduce the number of treatments and the kind of treatments that we have to apply to keep them going through the year. Uh, keep in mind that my motivations, although we get plenty of honey, my motivations are uh, to learn about the cycle of the bees and find ways to improve uh, their health and well-being through the year. And then, of course, to experiment with different plants and, and environmental impact on the bees to see what they're doing. Because remember, I'm photographing and videoing them and learning about their behaviors. So that's my interest. That's my payoff is to see something cool going on with the bees and know a little more each day than I knew the day before. So Dr. Tom Seeley's Darwinian beekeeping. Uh, keep in mind too, though, I do horizontal hives. So the long Langstroth hive, that thing is huge. Um, the, you know, the Layens hives are going to be big this year. So their populations are big, uh, bigger than I really wanted them to be. But uh, that just goes with the territory. And if they swarm, they swarm. And the observation hives are swarm generators historically. And, uh, so again, we get to see this dynamic and because those hives are for education, seeing them develop, seeing them put up queen cells, listening to the queen's piping, and all of the things that uh, indicate a natural cycle of a superorganism like the honeybee, uh, I want that to occur in those observation hives so the people that are learning about it can see it happen. If they never swarmed, they would never see those developments in that natural cycle through the year of a superorganism producing another superorganism. So that's why, and, and that practice would probably change if I were in the business of uh, getting honey, for example. Okay, so that's it. We're in the fluff part of today. So I'm going to start right off with the, um, the shout out. That goes to somebody that interviewed me this week and uh, very interesting guy. And I want you to know that um, I think we should be encouraging our youth in beekeeping. Most beekeepers, the highest percentages, they're retired people. People that uh, decide to keep bees when they're in the twilight of their life. When they're, they're done with the hustle and bustle, they want to go out into rural America somewhere and raise bees and sit there in a chair and when I see an apiary and every fourth hive has a nice chair sitting next to it or a nice bench or a well-contoured uh, you know bench up against a tree or something then I think yeah that see that's the point of keeping bees sit out there in a shade tree in the summertime and watch your bees come and go and just listen to them that's what I like to do. But anyway, supporting our youth. So not everybody should be an old retired person. And if you've never heard of Grayson, his uh, YouTube channel, and I'm going to link this down in the video description, or you can just look for it on YouTube. It's Wildwoods Honeybee Farms. Uh, 
Now, what's interesting about Grayson is um, he's really doing this stuff on his own, it seems. And uh, very sharp guy. And I asked him during the interview that he did with me how old he is. And he's 13 years old. And that's amazing because I'm thinking back, huh, when I was 13, I was in seventh grade, blah, blah, blah. What was I doing? Um, he's a very sharp uh, beekeeper. He's on top of it. Not just that, he's ambitious. I saw him at the Hive Life Conference down in Sevierville, Tennessee. And he was going around, you know, like a social media guy, which is what he's doing. But he's keeping bees and he's serious about it. So I think it's great when we can offer our encouragement for people that are doing stuff like that. He had very good questions. He was a very good interviewer. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff. But my shout out today is for Grayson at Wildwoods Honeybee Farms. Please go there, click on his latest video, show your support. If you like what he's doing, then you could subscribe. You know, we have a handful of young beekeepers, but uh, if, uh, if he's doing this well at 13, I can only imagine what he's going to be like if he stays with it at the age of 23. So just doing fantastic. So what anyway, do another thing which is kind of fun? A couple of episodes ago, I showed a piece of fine artwork. By the way, it's in this classified book right here. I have to keep it safe because I never know and somebody might try to steal it. It's a, uh, it's this, it's this chicken rendering that uh, I found in the microwave one day. This is my wife's message to me on uh, to not forget to open the chicken coops and take care of the chickens. But uh, when I showed that, it was tongue in cheek. You know, it's the most extraordinary chicken rendering I've ever seen. In fact, I don't know why the Louvre hasn't contacted me or. Maybe the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, uh, hasn't asked for it, but I'm keeping it safe just in case there are art thieves out there. But uh, people said stuff like, hey, I'd, I'd get that if that was on a coffee cup. Hey, I'd, why don't you put that on a shirt and stuff like that? So this is what I did. So now it's become kind of an ongoing joke here. But now, as of yesterday, it's on a shirt. It's on T-shirts and sweatshirts. And uh, so for those of you who told me to put that out there, um, it's under lock and key here. So the original is not for sale. But if you want wearable art, it's called Don't Forget the Chickens. I know it's like looking at the photo of a chicken. I know it's extraordinarily detailed. And I'm sure there's nothing like it anywhere in the art community right now. So I'm going to put a link to that shirt. Down. If you click on that link, there are other options too. There's a sweatshirt, there's women's t-shirts, there's men's t-shirts, and it's on the front and the back, and you have different color choices. So if you want one of those shirts, just show your support for my wife's uh, artistic ability, then uh, you could buy one of those. So that's it for today. The only uh, plan of the week information I have for you is to stage all your stuff and be ready for doing splits. Have your swarm kits ready. Swarm options, by the way. A heavy-duty butterfly net might be all you need. And uh, something like the Hive Butler Tote to transport them. And when I use the butterfly net, too, climb up a you know up in a tree and get the butterfly net around it. These are the big ones. They're 16 inches in diameter. And the fabric is like pillowcase cloth. It's not normal butterfly cloth, which is kind of... You know, like it could catch the feet of the bees. 
Uh, you put that up there, clip the branch, let it fall, you flip it over and then set the whole thing. You take the end off, set the, the butterfly net end right inside your hive butler tote and take it home. And then you just transfer that into whatever hive you want to put them in. It is so convenient and so easy. Yes, I've done lots of videos showing how that works. And uh, if you look at my Apame hive video, you'll see the butterfly net method. Very easy to do. So have your stuff ready. Be ready to super. Always wear at least your veil at the beginning. Don't get stung in the face. So I want to thank you for being here with me today. I hope that you learned something new. And I hope that your weekend ahead is going to be better than ours with all of the rain. But at least it's not snowing. So thanks for being here. Have a fantastic weekend. Mm -hmm.